welcome to the Mind Tales podcast. We are a fast-growing tech mental health organization here to bring you the insights that you need to boost your emotional health and thrive in your daily life. It's our goal to make quality mental health care both accessible and inclusive. That's why part of our mission is to get discussions, conversations, and debates about mental health going. From psychiatrists to educators, entrepreneurs and community members, we bring you the stories and experiences of health advocates from around the world. And that's what we're going to do today. If you like our episode or have any suggestions for future content, please like it, leave a comment, or connect with us on Instagram at MindTalesOfficial. It makes us so happy to hear from the MindTales community. Hi, Dr. Tai Broach. Welcome to the Mind Tales Collective podcast. It's such a pleasure to be chatting with you today. How are you? Fine. Thank you, Raisa. It's so nice to be here with you. We're so excited to hear more about the so many hats that you've worn throughout your career, from organizational development consultant and executive coach to also behavioral interventionist, educator, and so much more. Dr. Tai, you hold a degree in organizational psychology and clinical psychology as well, a PhD. And you're presently an associate professor at Zayed University. So I wanna hear more about your personal journey moving to the UAE, where your passion for psychology comes from and how it has shaped your research interests so far throughout your career. Well, thank you. You know, when you talk about passion um, for psychology, it wasn't always as clear cut, meaning it, it, for behavior, it, all, it stemmed for me from like as a little girl wondering why people did bad things, why people hurt other people. I mean, it's, it's kind of like that part is simple, um, but knowing what field of psychology and how it would manifest itself in me wasn't necessarily as clear cut. So when I ended up getting, you know, the um, a dual PhD, some of that was because I couldn't make the the a clear decision. I wanted to do both. I wanted to do all. Right. <laughs> so with so when as a child, when I became more interested in the mistreatment of people and what was the cause and then what was the solution, my my. Mm-hmm. My thing was more of an, and not judgmentally, it was more of an observation. It's mm-hmm. like, wow, that's interesting. What what would encourage or inspire someone to, to do something like that? And then how can they be helped? You know, so it was more of a curiosity right. for me. And I still have that, I think that same curiosity about humans and human behavior and where people are hurting. I'm always wondering of a way to to uh, to help reduce, you know, some of that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so it's interesting because growing up, my my mother was raised uh, by a single mother, mm-hmm. and she was in the military and in law enforcement all of my life, from being a deputy sheriff then to um, being a special agent, uh, and then you know always in the military wow. reserves, yeah. right? And the in the uh, with the Air Force, um, she was so I've always had the sense of justice and right and wrong, but you know, she was really kind of my shero. She was a pioneer mm. in most of the things that she did. Um, and I think that sense of, of being the only one or being a pioneer, I think was given to me from her, just try and see and see how it goes, just get out there and do something, you know? So um, that was, I think that pioneering spirit is what led me to develop consulting firms, develop um, training programs, 
and just to, to get in there with people in leadership where they are and, and be investigative, you know, in my curiosity and in my technique. Um, but also I think that's kind of what led me here to the UAE. So, right. you know, in that same spirit, um, I've had, like you said, I've had many hats. I've worked with mm. gaming and the gaming industry with um, Native, Native Americans, you know, tribes and tribal organizations. So with them helping them to develop themselves, their organizations, their professionalism and healthcare systems and things like that, the same thing almost exists here with a new country here in the new UAE um, and um, people who are in a developing developing mm. country and seeing how much um, the country and, and its leadership is committed to developing their their people and are like tribes and things like Absolutely, that. So yeah. um, that it seemed to be a natural transition for me and it was exciting to me. So that's kind of one of the ways that I moved here. Mm, amazing. I can't believe you hold a dual PhD degree in both of my favorite topics. So that's so amazing <laughs> to me. <laughs> Yeah, let's get more into the research aspect of it. So as a part of that um, trajectory, you also developed the organizational dysfunction mm -hmm. diagnostic scale. And mm -hmm. that's now been adapted and used as a starting point to really explore organizations globally. So can you tell mm -hmm. us more about what the scale is? How is it different from other scales that measure dysfunction? Most scales, I think, and I'm not, you know, I like measurements and I do like scales and surveys. And I think when people think of dysfunction, they might focus on performance measurement. Right. Um, what are the key indicators? What are the outcomes and things of, of that nature, which is, which is fine in and of itself. When I think of the odds, um, I really want to think about how systems they provoke, how systems provoke or promote um, people in its organizations in the construct of relationships. So I looked at three different constructs of um, interpersonal and interpersonal relationships, also through the strategy and structure, and also through the policies and practices. Those, those three constructs are not new, but I'm actually more uh, concerned with how those interact with the individual on an individual level. How do I feel about myself mm -hmm. and how do I feel about the organization? You know, how does its strategy or structure affect me as a person? And for example, policies and practices are something that drive people crazy. Some policies yeah. drive people nuts, you know, and um, and they find a way to jump around a policy or a practice or a procedure or something mm -hmm. and make their lives a little bit better. So I'm trying to, to look at what do people need to do to stay afloat and maintain sanity inside of organizations mm -hmm. and with all of those three constructs um, interacting that that I just spoke of. So I also like to point out that in any instrument, the, I think the first thing that that we need to differentiate ourselves with is the cultural relevance. Mm -hmm. So how I might use this in the US is different than how like when it was first used in Turkey, it's different. So for instance, if I'm asking about gatherings or getting together, which is now affected by the pandemic, right. well, people in certain, certain countries may not, you know, have office parties or gatherings as a part or a normal, normal course of their um, of their work celebration. So we need to take into consideration what is the norm for that for that country or that culture. Right. Right. I love that you brought up culture with this as well. Um, and so when it comes to designing interventions to optimize workplaces, so you've worked specifically with corporations and teams to discover these tension points, to find out what 
barriers are there in education, if there's inequality or maybe feelings of discontentment like you were describing. So why is this important to you and your research and how does it relate to the idea of having a tribe, especially when it comes to organizations? So when you look at tribes, you're, you're basically talking about a group of people. Um, culturally, they may or may not be um, related. They may or may not be family, uh, but they identify with one another and share the same ethics, values, morals, just basically the ways that, um, that people go about their day-to-day -day living. That is kind of defined as a tribe. And you'll hear some numbers, maybe 150, 500 upwards. That's, you know, that's you know, up for debate. But what you wanna talk about is how they identify themselves as belonging. Now, everybody who's in a tribe may not like that tribe and may not right. be identified by right. that tribe, you know? So we'll, we'll just put that out there, but, but they might be. Um, um, so, yeah. So, okay, so you talk about tribes with, um, their values, their ethics, you know, all of that stuff, how they go about their day-to-day -day being, the same thing occurs in organizations the same way. They have the same values, they have the, they have the, they carry values, ethics. You might find it in a mission statement, you might find it, you know, in their, their vision statement, their goal of purpose. And people within that organization have subscribed to the same way of doing things, basically. Okay. And so what happens is you have leadership should actually bring about um, the the motivation, the courage and facilitate mm. people's learning and growth process to carry out the mission and vision of that, of that organization. And that's not always a, a, an easy thing to do, seeing as how, like when I think about the odds, well, the organization's values need to be the same as the employee values. And right. sometimes they're not. So you have organizational ethics that may, be, may not be the same. Um, and you know, many people will work for organizations with whom they have differing religious beliefs or, or identities or things like that. Yeah. So that's where I kind of bring up sometimes they may or may not belong to the tribe, although they may, mm. you know, they may identify they may not belong in that way. Right. Right. So actually, when it comes to ambassadors for tribes in organizations, how do these identifications have the potential to create dysfunction in the workplace? Um, in terms of creating divisions and silos? And, and why is that harmful to the organization overall? Well, when you have ambassadors, you, you think of ambassador, you think of goodwill, you think of people trying to be representative of something that is good. Um, and I've worked, I've created ambassador programs um, for people to, you know, to help people to understand what being a good ambassador means. But basically you are a representative. Now, uh, leaders as well, they need to create ambassadors, people of goodwill throughout their organization or identify them to find out who they are. So when you have ambassadors, some basically people that you're supposed to look up to or look forward to mm. that are not exemplifying an organization, it's going to cause confusion and confusion so sows um, doubt, okay, obviously. Right. So what I would say that ambassadors and leaders, how they, uh, contribute to dysfunction is simply sometimes to me expressing or overexpressing dissent or dislike for other mm -hmm. people or other departments um, or other important aspects or initiatives of an organization. Okay, mm -hmm. and that is different than um, somebody not agreeing with a policy or a procedure because you can right. still you can still motivate and help your your employees to understand what's going on even though you may not agree and still bring out the very best 
in them in their attempt to do something, perhaps in a situation that may not be the best for them. So that's 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 totally different. But once you sow the seeds of doubt or discontent or something like that, that usually um, encourages people to either hold back or withdraw mm -hmm. and not be the best of themselves in the, in a tough time. It, it doesn't help encourage them for commitment. Mm -hmm. Right. So they become permitted, com committed to preservation, self-preservation. That could look like doing the less, the, the least that I, I need to do, you know, in order right. to survive instead of doing the most I need to do in order to contribute to the organization or the community. And so from your perspective itself, can you tell us where you've seen some main common areas that organizations have where dysfunction arises? So what separates thriving, well-functioning organizations from those that may be more segregated and divided, um, given your experience across so many industries? Right, um, that's a good question. When you say thriving organizations, for me, it's people, it's, it's when I say simple, walk the walk and talk the talk. Be what you, what you say that you are. There are many times, and I talked about that vision statement before, that's kind of a trap sometimes because nobody's gonna say, oh yeah, I, you know, I don't like being respected. I don't wanna speak in a respectful manner. But then do people actually do that? Mm. So I find that people who are consistent and congruent with their behaviors are the best leaders. Meaning, you know, if they want respect, they give respect. You know, they right. want to consider people and they, they really respect the, the different work styles um, of every of, of their employees and they have enough agility um, and fluidity about them to be able to work with people from mm. different different work styles mm -hmm. right and so what I do find is what you'll find in the research which I in the literature which I also agree with is you know you have leaders need to have a, a bit of a, a humility as well as a toughness yeah okay so you can have like a, a different type of uh you know, a stern kindness, if you will, yeah. to, to make sure you can help to, to carry and support others without, you know, really losing yourself, you know, those yeah. types of things. So you can be both demanding and, you know, like the word being democratic, you can do all of those. So the balance is that. Mm -hmm. I also find um, emotional intelligence is kind of what yeah. I'm describing to be a big thing for, for leaders more so than than talent. The talent needs to be emotional intelligence mm. and the rest of the skills you can build around. Right. Right, right. Um, and so are there any preventative steps that workplaces can take to ensure that they're creating these clear channels of communications for their organization or, or what does that look like? Mm. That's interesting. You talk about uh, channels of communication. Um, and I think uh, organizations struggle with that a, a great deal. I think that people, you know, it's kind of like death by email. They want to send out things. They can communicate, communicate with emails. And um, when you just ask the people, how often did you look at an email? Or you might see one email and not the next one, or there are too many revisions with, with emails. I do find that um, a communication by email too often, you get fatigue. You just get mm. you know email mm -hmm. fatigue, those types of things. So when you check in with your people, 
um, with your employees on a regular basis by actually talking to them, finding out how they are coming to their regular staff meetings and saying, I want to hear directly from you, then they're more likely to, to look at your emails. You know, um, I think one of the other problematic ways is that people have, when you talk about ambassadors, that could look like um, department heads um, or other people. Sometimes a problem that creates to dysfunction is thinking that you have your finger on the pulse of an organization, but you have right. the wrong person doing it. You know, the right. person may not actually be in touch. They might be more, you know, um, more inclined to please um, the top leader rather than actually carry the voice of the people. So uh, through throughout the, the organization. So that looks like people implementing change without, without asking the, the yeah. actual people on the ground who are doing it. And then, you know, so it's that buffer. Who do you get to carry the message to your leaders? And are the leaders yeah. actually engaging with people um, themselves, you know, right. instead of having someone else do it? And doing that, I think, is clears up the line of communication. So by the time I read something, I'm able to hear your voice in that email. So, mm -hmm. so I'm able to, it's not just a bunch of words. You know, I'm able to hear, you know, your tone of voice, what you would say, even your humor in that email. Right. Right. No, that that sounds so interesting. And I think when you involve employees in that way, it also increases that sense of belonging almost that you are a part mm -hmm. of of this entity or this organization itself. Your voice matters. And you're right. And that's one of the things pe knowing that people care and knowing that, you know, it, it, it helps people to be the best that they can. If thinking that somebody doesn't care, then they're like, why? Why should I do this? Nobody even cares. Yeah. So knowing that your leadership cares enough to come to you and talk to you and find yeah. out how you're doing, it goes a long way. It has a long lasting effect. Right. Um, and when you work with these organizations and you identify these tension points or identify perhaps issues that could be uh, resolved and you establish this plan for moving forward, how do you make sure as an organizational consultant that you're creating longitudinal change if that is... Um... Okay, so... That is, there's like a plethora. There are a lot of change management tools that can be used when implementing, you know, and tracking and, and making sure we do sustainable changes. And I support all of that. One of the things you need to make sure, myself included, is that whatever tools or techniques we, we use, we know how to use the tools properly. Okay, so if that's project management or if that's some, some change management kits or tools, it's all, I'm all in support of that, but making sure you understand what the, what, what you have put in and what you're getting out in order to do that is one of the first things, making sure you know how to use your tools. And believe me, a lot of people don't, <laughs> they, they, yeah. they just don't. Um, the other thing is, um, in my, uh, my observation, um, is I always establish check-in points when you have change because change addresses a point in time, okay? So you might have people who are unhappy about something, maybe morale is a little low in some, in some case, for example. Well, that might be due to a certain situation. So if you have certain checkpoints, 30, 60, 90 days, six months or something like that, to find out does the problem still exist or does the intervention that we have designed, does it still address the problem? Is it still there? Is it, has it become a foundation or has it become just another policy or an obstacle? So you always need to, to check in to say, what are we doing? How are things as it is now? So you wanna check in to get those, those, um, those timestamps to say, is, is what we're doing having the intended path, impact we want to do? Mm -hmm. 
again, yeah, checking in. I, I really like that idea. And so um, when it comes to emotional intelligence or effective leadership itself, you've also run and built leadership academies for executive coaching itself. Mm -hmm. So what are the traits that you've observed in emotionally intelligent leaders? And do you think that these traits are fixed? And how can how can someone become a great leader with great emotional intelligence? The first thing is for I think for great leaders is to do the work to do the work on yourself. That means get yourself some coaching. Um, you don't need to do all of the thinking by yourself. Find out, talk with somebody who disagrees with you or has a different a different viewpoint um, than you, and to understand why you disagree or even to understand why a person has the a, a different point of view than yours. Not necessarily say you have to agree with them, but your effort in trying to understand the other gets you outside of that your that that ego type of space. It gets you outside of the need just to be right. Uh, so qualities um, for leaders for me is like one of the most difficult things. We talk about change management. We talk about dysfunction. The one of the most difficult things to do is to change in public, is to change in front of someone. And I think leaders who, uh, it's not necessarily don't make mistakes, but leaders who can make mistakes and say, oh my goodness, maybe maybe I could have gone about something differently. Maybe I could have done something different and then keep it moving. And to see people course correct and then go about doing the right thing, I think sends a powerful message about allowing their employees to do the same. Um, with being able to do that. I'm not saying you have to necessarily bear your soul, but I think people are able to accept responsibility in, uh, in a way that maintains their integrity and the integrity of others and, and then show people how to, how to you know, let's say fail up, to fall up, not necessarily to fall down. That is basically, right. I think, one of the biggest things I think of a leader. If you think of anyone who you admire, I can guarantee you that person has not just met only with success. They probably had some trials and some tribulations, right, that they've gone through. And I think that, that leaders need to be courageous enough to, to embrace some of those and be able to share some of those to let them know that they're human, you know, and that, you know, they can carry the organization and, it's, and whatever it needs to do forward that they are that person. I love that you also touch on this aspect of authenticity and vulnerability. And I think that makes that just makes leadership so much more human as well. And at, at the same time, I think that can also increase that connection between or, uh, organizations and the employees that are within them as well to kind of humanize that structure in some way, too. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So it's like when you when you um, when you talk about executive coaching, or coaching in general, or leadership development programs. One of the things that, that I like to ask and to help coach people into is instead of focusing on doing something wrong, what did you do wrong? Um, I was taught, and I actually forget who taught me that, um, but was saying, what did you do exactly right to get yourself into this situation? Right. <laughs> so it helps people look at a different side of, yeah, well, well that means I had to do this or I had to do that exactly right to get yourself into this predicament, into a situation. But it opens people up to, instead yeah. of get out, getting outside of what did I do wrong, because I'm sure they know that, but it kind of takes the little bit of a sting off of it and allows them to open up a little and you know put some lightness into to what did I do? What have to, had to occur exactly at this time to get myself in this predicament? 
Mm -hmm. It still keeps us focused on how we can be open to doing things differently. Wow, I'm going to remember that for sure. Um, it's been great hearing your insights, Dr. Tai. But before you go, we'd also like to hear more about your relationship with mental health and what mental health means to you. Mental health, um, it's a level of, of self-care and permission to care for yourself that I think we, we all need to understand. It's, it's, it's something inherent in us, but we dismiss a lot. We, you know, can put taking care of our job as taking care of ourselves, taking care of others as taking care of ourselves. <clears throat> and sometimes that's not always the, the case. I mean, really deeply sitting with yourself, for instance, mindfulness. I'm big on mindfulness at this point to find out what the present moment is holding, just to be in the present moment and looking back only at a glance, looking back to see where you were and looking forward in a glance to see maybe where you want to be but what is that present moment yielding that contributes to your well-being? Mm -hmm. And I think understanding what contributes to your well-being is the biggest thing in mental health. Yeah. So that it's not something that's an obligation, but something that you want to look forward to, uh, to, to being in the present moment, giving yourself permission to, to love or even like yourself. Some people don't. They find it hard, very hard to like themselves or like the thoughts that they think, or they begin to be mm. in a conflict or a war with themselves. And I'm saying for self-care is to allow, allow that to be, and again, to, to do the work on that. So you don't keep falling in the same trap or the same hole on the same street all the time, but recognizing that where you are and doing the work that it needs to be so that the work becomes something that you look forward to spending some mm. quality time with yourself, meaning in your mind, in your head, in your sleep, in your exercise, in your food, being everything that you do, looking at that decision to see how does it contribute? How does it contribute to my well-being and then the well-being of others? I think that's the biggest thing for, for mental health. Thank you so much for your time, for joining us today, Dr. Tai, sharing more about welcome. your research. It's very inspirational. Thank you for the work that welcome. you do. Thank you, Risa. Thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you. Thanks for tuning in to the Mind Tales Collective. If there were any questions that stood out to you, don't let these conversations stop here. Share your thoughts with your family and friends or send over a quick message to us on Instagram to share your thoughts with us. And don't forget to hit the follow button. You can find us at Mind Tales Official. We know it's been a tough year. We want to remind you to check in on how you're feeling and ask for help if you need it. Remember, self-care is more than a band-aid. Your mental health is important. Stay tuned for more content next week. Take care and talk to you soon.